Hello. Hello. Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio's Venture Brothers podcast. We are back to talk about episode seven of season six called Party for Tarzan. Um, clearly the best form of party next to the Socialist Party. Um, so uh, joining me, as ever, is Stephen Adwell. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Stephen is professor of U.S. history and knows lots about Scorsese movies, as, you're, as you'll soon find out. Um, I'm your regular co-host, Imana, also co-host of the Graphic Policy Radio Comics podcast and co-host of the late, great Jessica Jones podcast that kept going and going through the whole season. Um, and, uh, yeah, I write about comics and whatnot for Graphic Policy, where you can find us, graphicpolicy.com. So in every episode of the Venture Brothers podcast, we talk about one specific episode of the Venture Brothers cartoon, and we explain all the references you may have missed and draw out themes that we think are important to discuss. Uh, this episode is Party for Darzan. Um, and, Stephen, would you like to tell us a little bit about what happened? Sure. Let's start off with a recap. So the episode opens with Dr. and Mrs. The Monarch uh, holding a sniper rifle, taking a beat on Rusty Venture, who is wearing the blue morpho suit. Egged on by Wide Whale, she takes the shot, seemingly killing him. And let's be honest, Dr. Monarch, I'm sorry, uh, Rusty Venture is basically asking for it. Look at, look at what he was wearing. Yeah. <laughs> I am awful. Uh, we have a flashback to Gary's origins. Gary, um, the henchman. Um, Monarch and his henchmen are in their costumes that they wore during the pilot episode because it's a flashback. And this show is nothing if not consistent in its portrayal of its own history. And we learned that Gary was kidnapped by henchmen while he was on his eighth grade trip to Washington, D.C. So now we now uh, know how Gary joined the uh, Monarch's crew. Yeah, and the uh, the continuity fans go absolutely berserk because it creates a certain continuity problem um, that we can get into later. So we then get a less ancient flashback to uh, earlier that day where Dr. Mrs. N21 try to persuade the monarch, the betrack-suited monarch, that he ought to arch Dr. Heine, a prominent New York City proctologist, in order to up his guild rating. Unknown to Dr. Mrs., uh, 21 and the Monarch plan to use this event to throw the Guild of Calamitous Intent off the Blue Morpho scent by having Kano conduct yet another villain killing in the Blue Morpho's name at the same time that the Monarch is arching Dr. Heine. As the two of them suit up, they note that the Blue Morpho suit needs to be cleaned and repaired due to being made in the 1970s and having gone through some rough treatment in the Gowanus Canal of Chlamydia. Which you would know if you listened to our earlier episode. Uh, while they're doing that, Dr. Mrs. and Dr. Z follow up from the meeting of the new Council of 5.5, which discussed the Blue Morpho as a threat and the original Blue Morpho's activities and the Guild's assassination of the original Blue Morpho, um, which I don't think we'd had confirmed until then. Uh, while Dr. Mrs. is oddly reticent to believe that Rusty is the Blue Morpho, Dr. Z points to a pattern of the Blue Morpho killing all of Rusty's arches. Um, not Rusty, all of Dr. Venture's, all of Dr. Venture Sr.'s arches, father of Do Rusty Venture. Um, the two of them travel to, uh, Dr. Z and Dr. Mrs., travel to the wide, to wide Whale's penthouse on top of the 
to spy on on top of the Trump Tower, to spy on the then Tech Tower, where Rusty and company are preparing for a lunar eclipse party, whose guest of honor is one Christopher Motherfucking Lambert, who Rusty invited when he met him at a swanky party that he and Billy and Pete had infiltrated to try to network. Lambert's glorious jumpsuit prompts him to go to Enzo's tailoring to demand a patriarch jumpsuit. Enzo tries to persuade him to go for a blue tux instead, but while he's in the back, Russ steals the blue morpho suit that 21 had dropped off. Through a, theory, uh, through a series of implausible accidents involving Billy and Pete's party organizing habits, Rusty ends up wearing a blue fedora and mask and has a red cocktail splashed on his uniform. Dr. Mrs. shoots him, and Rusty is saved by the still-functional bulletproofing in the three-piece suit. Yay! Maybe. After Dr. Mrs. takes the shot, she notices missed calls from the wandering spider, who 21 is, is, is arching in the uh, Pine Barrens at the same time, that the monarch sends her a selfie of him arching Dr. Heine with his own proctolaser and berates the council of their, for their hasty action, because she basically thinks she's proven that they're not the same person. The monarch concludes that this episode is a, quote, happy ending, quote, except for 21, who has had to kill Again. So, so initial, initial impressions. impressions. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you want to go first? Um, were, were you the one who was saying that this, as the episode that folks were saying was functioning almost like as if it was the season finale? Uh, I didn't think that, actually, but that's interesting oh. that people have been saying that. I take it back. It was That's right. It was a guy who I spoke to at Women in Comics Con. So, yeah, this definitely is an episode where tons of plot threads come together and explode on the page. Um, I didn't feel quite as emotional about it as I had thought I would or as, that I, or as I would want to. I mean, I honestly feel like, to me, the emotional highlight, because I'm a sick individual, the emotional highlight of this season so far has been Billy Quizboy talking about the importance of the new romantics while walking <laughs> without any of their personal belongings down the bridge in episode two. Like that just really got me. And of course, if anything, anything happens to my beloved couple of Serena and Hank, I would be destroyed. But um, this is a very interesting episode and it's incredibly well crafted just in terms of storytelling visually and uh, in terms of the plot points. Um, but it didn't have as much stuff for me to dig into in terms of my geekery, and maybe I, maybe I missed that a little bit. I mean, I just have to say, don't get me wrong, overall, this season is fantastic. This is the best season we've had in years. Um, but I, was, I guess I maybe had my hopes built up too high for this. I still think it's a great episode. It's just not as good as some of the others this season so far. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, um, I think that might be just, you know, uh, you know, which episodes contain our favorite references. Because <laughs> uh, you know, for that though, uh, you know, for me, like I was, I was really, really enjoying this episode because I've watched a ton of Martin Scorsese movies, um, and like they just kept on coming like weird references that we'll get into later that just kind of mm-hmm. like blew my mind. And I, I agree with you. The t- the plotting in this episode is incredibly tight. It's almost like a little puzzle box. Um, or a magic trick where it gives you that initial setup and then shows you everything converging uh, to make it happen and that shows you why what you think you saw is not what you actually saw. Um, but I, I also knew that this wasn't the, the final episode of the season, so I wasn't, you know, super tense about 
you know, whether it was going to be an, uh, an effective season finale. Although we've since learned that there is going to be a uh, mid-season special episode uh, similar to all that in Gargantua 2, and that there is going to be a seventh season. So that is big news for the show. So what we know right now is that there's another episode after this one, and then there's going to be a special later on in the year, basically. Yeah, and that there's a seventh season that's in the works. Got it. Because, of course, Marvel failed to employ the creative team as the writers of the new Doctor Strange movie, much to my chagrin. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's dig into some of those references. Uh, The first music that we hear is the Gregorian chant, and I feel like it's supposed to evoke like Roman Catholic church music, but that's not actually what Roman Catholic church music sounds like. But maybe I'm missing something. Was there any kind of Gregorian chant music used in the Scorsese film? Yeah, um, uh, his last temptation of the Christ. Uh, oh, Gregorian chanting. Um, I really like that movie too. But I guess I haven't thought about it for a while. Yeah, that that was a good movie and good call. Uh, yes, there's tons of Scorsese in this episode. Uh, yeah, this and you're is really this, a lot is, of that. <laughs> this is the Scorsese episode in the same way that like. Uh, you know, the previous episode was the uh, Andy Warhol episode and, you know, so on and so forth. So one of the signs of Scorsese-ness were gratuitous first-person voiceovers where people narrate the story of their lives and in some cases the story of other people's lives, like over, you know, as as a narrator, as like a voiceover, um, which is something you see in tons of his movies. Um, there's the first music pastiche, you hear is uh, over the scene of their asteroid base. Um, it's definitely sort of 70s period evoking. And then you get some 60s girl group pastiche music, which sounds like it sort of wants to be the Ronette, you know, the Ronettes, Be My Baby mm-hmm. was the biggest hit. Um, I think it did a decent job of sounding like that. There And uh, Scorsese uses, the, uses actual songs from girl groups in like Goodfellas and many of his movies. Um, oh, yeah. Evoke the time period. Uh, there's obviously heavy use of Rolling Stones, past, uh, Rolling Stones music in Scorsese's films. Um, what I thought was interesting is the first song that we hear that's supposed to sound like a Rolling Stones song. It, it's, it comes on out of nowhere and there's like a tracking shot behind it, which is another visual technique Scorsese yeah. uses all the time. I think that the songs they're playing during the Christopher Lambert party in the beginning of the movie it's supposed to sound like the Rolling Stones, but it actually sounds remarkably like Sunshine of Your Love by Cream. Um, so I I, uh, I think it's like, you know, Cream definitely, I know Derek and the Dominoes have been used extensively, um, for example. So uh, that definitely fits as well. Um, and when then in the scene where Gary talks about earning his wings, we have what I feel like is a perfect late 60s, early 70s Stones pastiche. It sounds like a combination of Brown Sugar, Sympathy for the Devil, and Gimme Shelter. Um, it's really freaking good. And I think it shows whoever they have doing the sound composition of that is really knows what they're talking about. Um, so, yeah. And then you actually, at the end of the episode, there's a Frank Sinatra, but maybe it's Dino, Dean Martin. I'm not so good at that. Uh, that plays over the end of the episode. And there's just tons of tracking shots throughout that being something which Scorsese uses a ton of in his films yeah. to the point where it's like what people watch Casino for, basically. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely the the tracking shot through the restaurant in Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. Um. So uh, Billy in the episode keeps repeating Doc's uh, catch lines, uh, which reminds me a lot of uh, in Jimmy Two Times in Goodfellas, who says everything twice. That's who the guy's name was. Thank you. Yeah. There's always uh, the, a Gloria. There's always a Gloria. Yeah. Uh, the slow-mo bullet sequence, um, you know, especially with the voiceover on top of that, that was very Scorsese-esque. Yeah, definitely. So you want to explain the Pine Barrens. Oh, well, you were going to say that the Pine Barrens sequence references the burying of Billy Bats and Goodfellas. Yeah, and especially the, the glow from the trunk when he popped it. That is straight up Goodfellas right there. That's right. For those of our listeners who aren't in America or who don't know the East Coast like we do, the Pine Barrens is a large uh, native forest in New Jersey that's a highly acidic soil, full of pine trees. It's not really a place people go on vacation. Like, it's this big park, but it's not like a place people go hiking. There's lots of lovely outdoors areas in New Jersey. That's generally not the one. I know this is surprising for people to hear, um, but that's not the one people go hiking in. Right, and but what it's it is famous for? Is, yeah, what it is also famous <laughs> for is, is having bodies dumped in it. Um, you know, if you watch The Sopranos uh, back in the day, the you know the Russian is still running around somewhere in the Pine Barrens. Um, uh, Look, another, that's just a stereotype uh, of our neighbors and the state next door, Stephen. Okay. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, but I mean, part of that stereotype comes from Scorsese movies. That's um, true. And then finally, uh, Monarch's retro Adidas-style tracksuit uh, that he wears in the present day is basically a uh, yellow and orange version of Ray Liotta's uh, blue Adidas tracksuit from Goodfellas when he's in prison, uh, which became a, a gangster sort of thing that, you know, you see uh, Chris um, adopting in, in Goodfellas as well. And one of the guys in uh, one of the guys in the, the one guy in Reservoir Dogs who isn't wearing a suit uh, is wearing that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, so, one of my favorite references uh, in this episode, just because it's kind of so very New York uh, centric and kind of like random, uh, Doctor Hyde, who uh, you know is one of the weirder, uh, I guess, super protagonists that we've seen on this show. Uh, it's clearly a play on the infamous Dr. Zizmore, a New York City-based uh, dermatologist whose ads have appeared in one out of five uh, subway cars since 1991. He just retired. Like, this is one of the most ubiquitous advertisements that any New York City resident is exposed to. Um like he's a Halloween costume people dress up at. He is like a cultural thing if you live if you like ride the metro system of New York. Um, another thing I was realizing is that because uh, we we haven't been doing this show for any year besides this one, um, we have a lot with Doctor Z in this episode. Uh, Doctor Z is a reference to the Johnny Quest villain Doctor Zinn. I guess they didn't want to name him after Howard Zinn, um, and he himself is just based off of Fu Manchu, which was sort of a yellow peril in quotes uh, offensive stereotype of the otherworldly effeminate Asian mastermind 
villain. Um, and, you know, they're definitely playing with that stereotype in this episode, in particular, actually, in a scene that we'll discuss later. Um, yeah. Also, on Gary's high school, sorry, junior high uh, Washington, D.C. trip, um, he's there t- uh, to present a flag to Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell, um, who was a senator from Colorado. Uh, he went from Democratic Party to Republican Party for completely transactional political reasons. Uh, so I wrote bad politics, beautiful jewelry, because he actually is a professional jeweler. And you, I saw his stuff in the Native American Museum, and it's really gorgeous. Um, but I, I thought it was funny that the uh, the henchman kidnapped the, the little white kid as opposed to the <laughs> grown up, yeah. as opposed to the grown up like Native American guy. We think that. You know, the the white kid is more likely to be a senator than an actual grown up person who's just not a white guy. <laughs> like, I think that's kind of interesting commentary. Yeah, well, you know, the problem is that the monarch hires lousy henchmen. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. But it was great to see 24 again. You know, mm-hmm. he's a fan favorite despite having been dead for most of the show's running. Um, so, one of the, like, stranger. Um, kind of ongoing references in this episode, there were a lot of references to serial killers from the 1970s. Uh, so, for example, uh, when uh, Dr. And Mrs. the Monarch tells uh, her husband uh, to be careful because the blue morpho is out there, but uh, she knows that the blue morpho only kills tens. This is very reminiscent of uh, the son of Sam, uh, who... Uh, primarily targeted brunette women in New York City uh, in uh, 1976 and 1977. If you've ever seen the um, the Spike Lee movie, Summer of Sam, uh, there's a scene in it where um, uh, the main character gets his uh, girlfriend a blonde wig to sort of protect her. And that was something that happened quite a bit in, in New York in, in uh, those two years. And the, the, also the strange thing about that is that, you know, in, in episode two, season 11, the Venture Brothers met uh, a mashup of the son of Sam and Shaggy from Scooby-Doo, mm-hmm. uh, who was uh, taking, you know, orders to kill people from his demonically possessed dog, Groovy. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was pretty disturbing. That was a good episode, too. Yeah, oh, one of my favorites. Uh, especially because of the Patty Hearst stuff. Production of the Wandering Spider, uh, using a fake sling and asking for help moving furniture, uh, resembles both the uh, Euro size 14 scene from Silence of the Lambs, which was referencing the tactics of Ted Bundy, the real-life serial killer, uh, who killed more than 30 women um, in the 1970s. Uh, and, you know, again, in that same episode, uh, the Venture Brothers made a mashup of Ted Bundy and Fred from Scooby-Doo. Wow. Yeah, it's definitely a subject that they know a lot about. Yeah, and uh, two more things. Uh, one, the fixation on the lunar eclipse. I mean, yes, that's because of Rusty's lunar eclipse party, but it also, that combined with the phone call to the sort of the guild, uh, resembles the Zodiac Killer, who, you know, in California in the 1970s, um, you know, there was certainly theories that he was killing people around the time of the lunar eclipse. Um, and then finally, the, you know, the New Jersey Pine Barrens, um, you know, uh, there have been, you know, cases in both the movie, uh, in the movies, uh, and in real life of, you know, 
bodies being dumped in the New Jersey Pine Barrens because it's kind of out of the way, and I think the acidic soil is supposed to decompose bodies faster. <laughs> Interesting. Probably. Um, yeah. Uh, then, post-serial killer uh, references, um, I when you see the monarch is on the subway, because I think he's still supposed to be Jersey Transit, sorry, but he sees that a person is about to uh, sit down next to him, so he pops open his wings, so he then takes up three seats all by himself. Um, and the mess transit system, we have a problem that we refer to as man-spreading, where men sit down and their legs just take up the entire seat, not because they're large individuals, but because they feel the need to occupy as much space as humanly possible to demonstrate their masculinity. Or maybe they have elephantitis of the testicles, unclear. Um, but that was it's such an antisocial and completely normal occurrence. There's like signs against it on the subway system. So I was saying, oh, look, there's him man spreading. And Stephen, you had a, you were saying, is it villain spreading? Which I think is perhaps most accurate. But all man spreaders are villains. And we are only yeah. able to combat them by sitting down next to them firmly. I sit down next <laughs> to man spreaders to force them to like wedge their legs back together. That's like my political agenda. So very good. Um, so another sort of kind of out of left uh, field is uh, Billie Jean King, uh, who was a leading women's tennis player in the 1970s and uh, played sort of quote unquote bad boy uh, Bobby Riggs in a tennis match that was promoted as the Battle of the Sexes. Uh, which 90 million people watched in 1973. Uh, and she won that fight, uh, match. Uh-huh. Um, and in 1981, uh, she was the first female athlete to come out of the closet uh, as a lesbian and lost millions of dollars in endorsements as a result, although since then she's sort of become an ambassador for L- LGBT uh, athletes. So what you're saying is that she's a real American hero and that it's kind of yeah. weird kind of weird that they used her in that scene? Yeah. I mean, you know, she she has sort of described herself as, like, not always knowing her own sexual identity because, she, you know, she had been in relationships with men and she'd been married uh, before she sort of, uh, you know, came out of the closet. But it that plus the, like, thing about Dr. Z having a feminine body was kind of weird all around. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll chime in on that a bit more later. Um, then we have the Christopher Lambert speech. Right. I don't know, which is I guess which was basically Rusty the Adventure explaining who Christopher Lambert is. Yeah, but it, there was something about the like the structure of the speech, especially the bit about like you know this that's what his friends call him, mm-hmm. which that makes me think that it was a reference to some speech in a Scorsese movie. I just, you know, my, my, uh, my, uh, recall just kind of failed me there. Unfortunately. I'll have to see if any of our people on Twitter happen to know. I think you're, I think that that sounds true. Um, we also have, uh, Gary in an earlier scene had fought against, um, professor vibration who is an interesting costume on him. I, his costume reminds me a little bit of Ozymandias from the Watchmen, from the comics version. There never was a movie and it'll never be spoken of. Um, <laughs> uh, and it sounds like his powers are a little bit like Dr. Vertigo as a p- common, commonly used vil- uh, comics villain. 
So I mean, I also thought he just looked like sort of a Cheeching Chong version of a hippie and the whole sort of good vibrations thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, he definitely... Well, the other thing about the comics is, like, it always took comics, like, five to ten years longer to, like, get on a certain visual, popular visual wavelength back in the day. Like, we all think about, like, I don't know. I, you know what? This is a huge tangent, and I'll drop it. Anyway, sure. <laughs> in conclusion, but it's sure. For. Okay, so, you know, like, the famous Dick Grayson Disco Nightwing costume, a.k.a. Disco Wing costume, you look at that and you figure that's from the 70s. And that would have made sense because it's a very glam rock jumpsuit. It's not. That's from like the late 80s. That costume like made no sense in the context it was drawn in. It was like completely dated fashion. Ah. Um, and that's a consistent thing in comics. It's like so people, it wasn't just a pop collar. No. It was, it, was, it was like something that would have actually been kind of cool and, and, and like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't. I think it would have been cool back during the glam rock era, maybe. But it, it came out like way after that was cool anymore. Uh, it's sort of like how they keep putting. They kept having Supergirl wearing crop tops well into the period of time in which they were no longer fashionable, and they've kept them on her so long that now that now they're fashionable again. So that means they'll probably <laughs> stop having her wear them because now they're fashionable. Oh, that's hilarious. They went from, like, out of fashion to retro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the length of the comic book. Yeah. Um, so, uh, another reference, uh, this is something that uh, Gary brings up with, you know, in reference to the death of Professor Vibration. Uh, Jess Daly and Peter Burkowski were real video gamers who did die of heart attacks after getting a high score in the game Berserk. Uh, it was sort of the first kind of publicized, you know, death from video games, or more accurately, death from being dehydrated, uh, you know, and standing up for, you know, hours and hours and hours, and not being in good health to begin with. Um, so there wasn't any drug abuse involved? I've always, I've always wondered. Uh, probably of some kind. Uh, so you had some stuff about Times Square. I missed it. Oh, and, they said, and then there was the other kid who also, like, it's, they're both true. So I thought that was, I thought I'd heard those, those stories, kind of things your mom tells you, don't do this. Okay. So in the scene where they're in the, um, in the tack, in the, uh, the limo, in the limo, uh, going to uh, Wide Whale's apartment, they're driving through Times Square and I caught a number of billboards. There's a billboard that's in the exact same style as the Rent, the musical billboard, but instead it says lease. Um, there's a billboard that looks like the Cats the Musical billboard, but it says dogs. <laughs> and, you know, there, in uh, Times Square, there was a famous cup of noodles um, sign that was just up for generations. And instead, in this one, they have a sign that says, soup is everywhere, or something oh, like that. Is that the one that had the, like, steam coming out of it? Yeah, the steam coming out of it. Yeah, that's, like, right, 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 ancient. Right. And then, also, they have N and N's instead of M and M's. Right. Uh, I really and want then... M and M's. <laughs> I've got some sour gummy bears, but no ends. Um, We're not even in the so, same borough. Yeah. Um, the final uh, reference that I have uh, listed is the Brazilian wandering spider. In addition to being a Dr. Octopus reference, uh, given his metal legs, is the world's most venomous spider. And ironically, uh, given what happens in the episode, uh, that you know Gary uh, gets shot in the crotch with his own uh, dart gun, uh, the bite of the wandering spider, in addition to causing debilitating pain, 
causes priapism among men. So it has the opposite effect as the dart gun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, oh, what was the what was the thing uh, with where you got uh, Jackson Public to confirm oh, something for you? Thank you for reminding me. Yes. So um, uh, remember when we were talking last week? We couldn't quite place who the hard candy, aka Candy Darling, um, ah. was supposed to be. And uh, I had meant I was I was chatting with him on on Twitter and. He said it was supposed to be Bizarro, which, if you'll recall, was our best oh. guest that we had at the time. So he also said that the, all, not all the characters are exact analogs, but I, I really feel like they are. Um, I mean, we well, chat, no, uh, I, yeah. I mean, I think some of them are kind of, you know, the, there's bizarre anal, uh, there, there's direct analogs, and then there's just like we think that this pun is too fun, like, not to use on our own, you know? There you go. Yeah. I think that that's good. Um, uh, also, he, uh, somebody on, a guy called Hell, Hellbilly on Twitter had tweeted that they we need to, because, you know, there's a scene in the, the party early in the season, I think the first episode, where you have Donald Trump in the background, and um, he was saying, can we petition to have someone else arch us? Instead of, instead of Donald Trump. Like, Donald Trump is arching the American people. Um, so that was a funny little conversation. Uh, Doc, um, I'm sorry, uh, Jackson Public said that they wished they could have um, gotten rid of him from that scene. Uh, not because there's anything, like, I, I sort of question him about this. It's not because he thinks there's anything wrong with it being political. It's just he's really tired of seeing Donald Trump's face everywhere. But I like the fact that he's there because I think it gives – the story a specific cultural moment to exist in. I think it puts yeah. it in a specific context of like, this was made during the time when we were still laughing at Donald Trump. Like, I think right. that that's and, actually significant. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, like when all of this was being drawn and written, they had no idea, like, Oh, that's exactly you know, what, what was going to happen. You know, like he, he put a hashtag on it saying, car, car, saying like, uh, like cartoons take a long time to make or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't have super much business. in the way of super science uh, this episode, but we do have a ton about super business. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. First of all, uh, the monarch scheme to pass a law to make the venture surname illegal. That is that classic. That's like a hijink that a kid would come up with. I think I feel like I feel like it has to be from something, but I couldn't figure out what. Yeah, but it's also it is like the perfect example of kind of diabolical, but also deeply petty. <laughs> His specialty. You know, it, it's not world domination. You know, it's I just want to make this one guy's life miserable. Mm-hmm. Um. So the Council of Five Point Five. Uh, which is the the new sort of internal guild organization uh, set up to deal with uh, the Blue Morpho, which 5.5, because Watch and Ward apparently don't count as a full council member, and they have to sit at the kitty table. What did you think about that? It made me really realize, like, it just seems weird that they don't have any other villains who volunteered to be on the steering council, and yet those two goons are not given petty villains. Yeah, I think part of it is, you know, obviously we're we're meant to see that the guild is in 
is struggling, right? You know, that's kind of mm-hmm. been the driving plot this, this season is that the guild is having problems. Uh, but also it's kind of hilarious because I, I loved watching Ward's kind of reaction to being at the kitty table, <laughs> which is that, like, one of them is, like, desperately trying to get recognized and, like, participate in the process, and the other one is completely checked out. That's pretty realistic of actual kitty tables. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, some kids don't want to be there, and some kids think it's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. mm, so uh, we also, you know, in, in terms of sort of super business stuff that we learned, the Blue Morpho had a price put on his head as a non-guild vigilante claimed by someone in 1976, and records of who that was were destroyed by the Sovereign. Now, I hmm. found this interesting for several reasons. Number one, I mean, it's confirmation of something that most people had sort of guessed and, you know, pretty much concluded uh, regardless. Uh, I was curious for a moment that, like, you know, given that the Sovereign is a shapeshifter, was there something going on there, uh, you know, in terms of the records of, like, who um, ordered the hit or whatever, but I think that's probably a red herring. Uh, But the fact that it's the same year that Vendata was created by Jonas Venture, and Jonas has talked, uh, and Vendata talked about, like, having, uh, you know, like, could, uh, like a plane crash and a missing wife. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure at this point that, you know, the, the I think we can take as, as sort of written now that the Blue Morpho became Vendata. Yeah. Um, which, you know. Can you, can you remind I, folks just who that is? Sure. So Vendata was a cyborg who uh, for a while, uh, he was created by uh, Dr. Jonas Venture uh, back in the 70s. And um, uh, he became a member of the Guild of Calamitous Intents. I think he was on their council. And uh, when Brock was trying to um, uh, was trying to infiltrate the Guild uh, nightclub, he beat him up and stole his uh, his costume. And he, like, was left in a dumpster. Yes. So, you know, that's interesting. It's also interesting we learn in this episode that, like, you know, we, we'd seen, obviously, that, you know, Jonas Venture and the Blue Morpho like to swing and that they fought uh, together. And now we get this sort of uh, a better sense of what that ongoing relationship was like. Uh, as, as Dr. Z describes that, the Blue Morpho was Jonas Venture's junkyard dog doing all the kind of dirty work that Jonas Venture couldn't be seen associated with, which, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely fits the whole kind of ongoing thing about, you know, what is acceptable for super antagonists and protagonists to do and his whole kind of um, liminal status. Yeah, I feel like this this whole backstory is super important in this season, uh, and I think it's it just has never been dealt with the way it has been dealt with in this season. Right, and you know, hopefully, we're going to get some sort of resolution because, like, one of the things they've been kind of doing this season is like setting this stuff up like a row mm-hmm. of dominoes, and we just haven't seen kind of realization from any of the key players yet. Um, speaking of which, one of the things that people noticed from this episode. Uh, and hat tip to, uh, you know, the Venture Bros, uh, Venture Brothers Reddit uh, community, that there, when uh, the Monarch and uh, 21 used the costume pods in the, the Blue Morpho case, 
there are three pods. Hmm. One for the blue morpho, one for Kano. And my hypothesis at this at this moment is that the third one was for the monarch's mother or Lady Morpho or whatever her name was. That's the only person who makes sense, yeah. I mean Hmm. It certainly wasn't gonna be for young for the young boy. Um I mean, I suppose anything's possible, but check, chances are it would be for his wife, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the the sidekick role is Kano, so, you know, there's not really a, like, two sidekicks that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, tell us about Guild Rankings. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that people get really frustrated with in creating superhero stories is, like, coming up with mashups that feel to be balanced enough to uh, be worth reading. Um, you know, I, I, if you have Superman beating up a non-superpowered criminal every issue, it's sort of, it seems almost like bullying. Um, and so I feel like consumers of superhero culture have a sense already about these power level rankings. And certainly uh, the materials that we get along with our comics, like all those those collector's cards and things we, you know, there's informational things that come with video mm-hmm. games, like everything's all about ranking different power levels. So of course this show is going to make that very explicit. And it's obviously been a narrative device that they've used a great deal in this season, but I don't think that they mentioned that kind of stuff explicitly ever until this season. Yeah. I and mean, especially not the equal, they, they've talked a bit there. There was a scene back in the day where there was like a promotional vi- video for the Guild of Calamitous Intent where they were talking about like mismatched villains being oh, like right. a problem that the that the guild that could the help, guild with. help you with. Yes. Um but you know, they've they've now made it very clear. Um so what did you think of the of the sort of the scenario that we learn about what happened with uh the villain Turnbuckle and what happened to him at the hands of Action Man? Well, I find the characterization of As- Action Man as a complete psycho to be a very interesting choice. Um, and this is not the first episode that he's characterized that way, but it's definitely not something we knew about him when he was first introduced. Um, uh, you know, we determined that there was an action figure toy called Action Man that was like a British toy. G.I. Joe, yeah. G.I. Joe, which was like, that, which is what Bowie was referencing in his song. Um, so I, I think, I, I presume, though, that having Action Man be a violent sociopath it's just because they want to show those how those kinds of characters really are violent sociopaths. Yeah, and, and it, you know it feeds both into this sort of whole thing about like if supervillainy was real, you know, characters like the Punisher, you know, wouldn't seem like dark, brooding antiheroes who are so cool in a '90s way. They're like, <laughs> no, these people, are, you know, that's the DC sniper. It's like these people would be goddamn insane and you mm-hmm. know killing, you know, supervillains who only exist in their mind. Uh, and, you know, it also, I think, points to, like, you know, Jesus, you know, you'd think you'd known, like, the depths of, you know, how badly Rusty has been hit by the whole superhero thing. Man, seeing a man murdered literally in front of his eyes after being, you know, horribly beaten with the butt of a pistol, it's just, that's really fucked up. It's fucking brutal. But I definitely feel like it was one of those moments when you first have the view of him getting beaten into the ground, the fact that this is a comic 
It doesn't yeah. have the same um, punch that it would have in a different art style, which is why it's good that they did do that reverse shot where you see his face covered in blood with his tooth yeah. missing. I think without oh, that, absolutely. without that, that whole sequence of him getting beaten to the ground would look like, it was just like Warner Brothers cartoon violence. But yeah, when you exactly. have the reverse and you see the blood, yeah. you're like, oh, that's fucking brutal. And that's what Rusty Venture saw. Yeah. Also, um, what turnbuckle is the uh, padding thing at the corner of where, re- of where um, wrestling or boxing match uh, pads when the, ro- the, um, the ropes go. If you watch yeah, also, WWE wrestling or WWF, as it was called when I was a kid, then you should know that. Because that's what you got to climb up and jump off of to give them the elbow. Yeah. Um, also, uh, yeah, the people's elbow. Um, also, you know, the, the overall look of turnbuckle really reminded me, like, you know, the whole bald head, handlebar mustache, you know, giant Old timey. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminded me of like the kind of old timey boxer characters who sometimes get like pictured in, um, like, uh, Nintendo punch out. Yep. There's like a, Definitely. yeah, there's like a German boxer in, in the show who, who has, like, one of those big handlebar mustaches. So he's definitely sort of showing you, like, kind of intergenerational uh, stuff where it's, like, he's expecting this kind of manly put-up-your-dukes kind of thing, and the action man is just, you know, you know, <laughs> he's a goddamn yeah. psychopath. Yeah. Um, so, um, arching insurance. Now, this is something that initially all, uh, wrong-footed me. I thought he was saying that if you kill the person that you're arching – you get insurance money, which is confusing because I thought that um, that basically killing was not allowed under guild rules, um, or at least like not the kind of the same like intentional killing. Um, but I think it's sort of the reverse. It's like if your arch accidentally dies, you get a pension. Oh, that's how it is. Whether or not accidentally dies by the actions of whom, I suppose, is the question. Yeah. If somebody else kills your kills your arch. That's that's a different thing, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's another to... weird piece of the business model that doesn't quite add up to me. Yeah. Um. So uh, I think you've got the next thing here. Uh... Oh. Sorry, yes. Um, yeah, I think that another theme of this episode is, like, there's, real quote, real villains versus, quote, bureaucratic cowards, which is how Wide Whale tries to characterize um, Dr. Mrs. I think it's interesting that the female character, I mean, she, you know, historically in the show has been the character who, like, pays attention to order and rules and, like, gets the business done and keeps the paperwork in order, doesn't want things to devolve into chaos, it's historically been her role. But here, that's really being used against her. Like, they're trying to characterize her that way. And I think it's, I think it's being done to show sort of that, that they're being sexist. It's sort of like, mm-hmm. and, when, and when she feels like she has to go and be the one to pull the trigger, they, like, basically bully her into pulling the trigger. That just sort of feels yeah. how, like, Hillary Clinton feels like she has to be a hawk because she's female. Um, yeah. They've, they've definitely been playing with that this whole season. I mean, especially, like, the way that the Phantom was sort of like, you know, she's supposed to be in charge, right? She's the chairwoman. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like the Phantom and Wide Whale seem to be kind of running this game on her. 
Uh, and this definitely seemed like a moment where she was like, you know, clearly reluctant, but also, you know, she sort of said like she wants, you know, part of her wanted to do it to sort of show them, you know, what she was made of. I think that it's a, a very apt commentary on how women are put in these situations when they're even once they're given power or take power for themselves. They were still yeah. put in these kinds of situations that are no win and then trying to be manipulated against us. And she's really the person who's the backbone of the whole damn thing. And those pigs mm-hmm. need to shut the fuck up. And I guess the, the one thing where I thought was kind of weird is that, like, so far in this season, she's been the kind of aggressive one vis-a-vis the Blue Morpho. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, taking a shot at him. Like, you know, she shot up his car and stuff like that. So I was surprised that... um that this this episode she kind of does a 180. I wasn't sure where that was coming from. I think that there's a difference between her saying that I think this guy is the guy versus her saying I know it and I'm going to shoot him. I agree though that it was sort of like wait wasn't she the person who was trying to tell everybody this guy's a big threat? I think maybe it's more like she's trying to get people to pay attention, but that doesn't mean she wants them to pay attention and that the answer is to shoot him. Yeah. I don't know, maybe she's like, thinking I've of them always, as going from like maybe it's like she thinks of them as having gone from like zero to eighty. Yeah, um, and certainly you know, like I think she does want like you know she she's rightfully suspicious because you know the white whale is the one providing the footage and it's not rusty, um, and you know you do get the sense like if they're if they're gonna run with this whole thing of like the white whale you know, trying to basically arch the monarch, you know, for revenge for his brother, you know, having her kill the monarch's, like, only purpose for existence in arching, that would be a huge deal. Yeah, that would be he would, he would, he would never forgive her. I mean, I feel like that was what the significance of the bullet leaving the gun in that moment really was. Yeah. Um, So... Uh, yeah, so uh, Gary's backstory, um, so there's a little bit of a continuity problem because, like, he's talked about previously that, like, he was abducted when he was 15, and he's talked about, like, having high school teacher. So the fact that he, in this case, was abducted when he was in eighth grade and got his GED is a little bit confusing. But, you know, to a certain extent, I think this is, you know, Hammer and Public like deliberately fucking with the continuity just because they know that, you know, comic book fans have this kind of personality. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But also I think the fact that he got his GAD and that he's like, you know, he's the one person who really comes off the worst in this episode, you know, cause he has actually has to kill a guy. Um, yeah, and that's really, we haven't seen the guild ever kind of set up an execution of any kind or like an ambush of this nature, really. Certainly, you know, we've seen the monarch kill people in the heat of the moment. Um, he did kill Wonder, he did order 21 and 24 to kill Wonder Boy. Um, but that was, you know, previous seasons. Um but, you know, it, it was interesting, like, you know, with the book last episode, like, I'm really thinking that, you know, 21, like, might be out of the game. 
I, I think he, I think he wants to be out. I think he sees that he's traumatized, and he's shown signs yeah. of that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the theme of failure. So I mean, definitely the whole like monarch talking about coming down from a ten to a four. That like you know he because he used to have this like giant cocoon base and armies of of uh, you know henchmen with butterfly wings, and then you know all that shit got blown up, and now he's a four driving you know taking the path train to New York City. Um, so there's that. Although you know, like given the way that he ended the episode, like it does kind of seem that he's on his way up. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it might be a comeuppance kind of thing, but, like, for the moment, you know, like, yet another person in between him and uh, and Dr. Venture is dead. So, seems to be going well so far. Um, so... In terms of, you know, on the other hand, man, Rusty Venture is not having a good night. Um, you know, we learn more about his fucked up childhood. Um, I thought the, the his speech when he's talking about the, like, the party of the, well, you know, the, like, wealthy socialites in New York City was interesting because, you know, he's not a self-made man any more than any of them are. So that God, was kind of... No. Delusions. A little bit of bullshit there. Um, but it also, you know, it does point out he's got no friends. Like, mm-hmm. outside of Billy and Pete, no one will really hang out with him. Yeah. Um, and, like, he has this kind of moment where, like, he gets a celebrity friend, he thinks. And then he's, like, crushed when he finds that Lambert snubbed him. It's, well, Lambert didn't snub him. Right. But, yeah, that. Lambert, I guess, showed up way too late, so he kind of... Well, by that point, Rusty had given up, but he shouldn't have. Right, and the eclipse was over, so he kind of missed that that moment anyway. Um, So, family and legacy. Uh, I mean, definitely the monarch scheme to pass a law to make the venture surname illegal is kind of the biggest, like, unto the seventh generation thing uh, you can think of. Um, there is also this whole ongoing mystery about who killed the Blue Morpho and why, and, you know, is the monarch ever going to find out that the guild whacked his father uh, and possibly his mother? And that's another thing, like the third pod, and was there a lady Blue Morpho? I wonder which which parent's death is going to impact him the most. Mm. It's a good question. Or which piece of truth, I guess. Uh, So you had some thoughts about the gas gun? Well, we know that uh, we know that gas, that the Venture Brothers uh, compound has been the host to a tag sale from the episode Tag Sale, You're It. And if you recall, you know, uh, the uh, the Monarch used that as an opportunity to infiltrate their... um, their head, their their home, and and a lot of different villains went and like just bought Venture Brothers stuff uh, from them. So I wasn't sure if that grappling gun, which they basically try to hold as incriminating evidence of the Blue Morphos' involvement with Doctor Venture, 
or that he is the same person. I don't know if it's because it's just an old school Dr. Venture gun from when the Blue Morpho and Dr. Venture were hanging out together, or if it's like actually because the monarch recently bought a grappling gun from Dr. Venture. I I think it's probably the former because uh, they do show a serial number uh, built into the gun. And, you know, if the, the, the Blue Morpho and Venture were that close, you know, Jonas Venture was the scientist. So, you know, he's the guy who's going to make the gear. So I can imagine that that would be something that the, you know, he might have made for the Blue Morpho, depending on what their relationship was And like. there wouldn't have been a serial number on it. So uh, you're saying you think, I don't know. So you're saying you think it is tag sale or it isn't tag sale? I, I think it's not tag sale. I think that he made oh. it for him back in the day. So why would there be a serial number on it if it was a gift made for your friend? Uh, because that's the kind of 60s A-type personality that Jonas Venture was. Well, I'm never making you any jewelry. Just kidding. Um, uh, <laughs> well, I expect so, a serial number. Come on. Yes, obviously. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's, it really reminds me of that scene. Anyhow. Gas gun. Sorry, not grappling gun. I mean, I guess I'm thinking of, of uh, Gravity Falls too much. Well, there's also, um, a, I mean, they have been using a grappling gun. So I think oh, it's either right. got That's like a dual means. function thing or like they've I'll got two blue morpho guns. I like it. So one of the weirder things in the episode that we touched on before was the whole blue morpho masquerading as Billie Jean King to seduce Dr. Z, which is so confusing and random of a choice. I mean, you could say, okay, well, they needed it to be a woman who could be physically strong enough like for her to look for a blue morpho to pretend to be her. Um, but I mean, I would imagine, blue morpho, I would imagine that a guy who is like essentially a superhero guy is going to be bigger than a woman who is a real strong woman, like for tennis as opposed to like rugby. But I don't know, whatever. But one of the things I did look at is I watched the uh, ripping off the face mask reveal a few different times. Mm-hmm. Um, to see whether or not the animated shoulders get broader after the mask change. Uh, they don't. They stay the same, and the shoulders themselves are rather ambiguous. Um, uh, but I do think that the arms get more muscular after the mask comes off. I'm very confused about whose body is it and when. Like, how was he able to have, um, like, sex with Dr. Z without Dr. Z realizing that there was a penis somewhere in there? Like, it's very confusing. I don't know. It's the kind of thing where the first time I watched it, my feeling was like, okay, I think it's a little bit fucked up because of the Billy Jean King, like, why or her thing. But I don't think we should think too deeply about it because it's just a throwaway surrealist moment. And then when I watched it again, I was like, no, this is like, this is like key to something. I don't know yeah. what it's key to. Because they have, like, they go to some lengths to have Dr. Z say, like, you know, we had sex every conceivable way there is to have sex. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm with you that this is puzzling. Like, it could be that they're, like, did Jonas I mean, the, Venture build him a fully so anatomical it, suit? Yeah, I, that would have to be significantly large. That it would have to be in order for. This is such a strange thing to be arguing, uh, but in order for it to be larger than him, he would need. If you were going to have like a, a like a like a prop 
suit of armor of being female, like that would have to be bigger than your body is. Yeah. Um, although that would continue the whole serial killer theme with the whole Buffalo Bill from Silent Hill. Ah, no, never say that. Never say that. Never, I, Sorry. It's Sorry. Can't um, feel it. My theory is that there's a switcheroo um, with okay. the Lady Morpho. Um, which, so they traded uh, that in bed. Because he is like also smoking like opium yeah. and being an Asian stereotype. And, you know, also I think cocaine. Um and he mentioned, uh, and you know, we, since we know that like the Blue Morpho, and you know, was into swinging, that you know, it wouldn't be surprising that that would be something that you know he would be comfortable with. Um, no, I don't think that even matters, honestly. If this is like part of like super agent espionage, like I, I don't know, I, I don't think that that's even. I don't even think that's an important function of it. I, I. I, yeah. I I just mostly was trying to figure out like how the hell is that possible? Like yeah, in the logistics of the bodies involved. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it was like you know, I mean, you know, the whole like uh, Mission Impossible face mask thing is, you know, that's one thing, right? But you know, a full body costume is something else, you know, entirely. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's significant. I don't know what it means. But you said you thought it might be Lady Morpho and and, and Blue Morpho like switched places like during the afterglow, so to speak. Yeah, that that would make sense to me. Um, so you had some thoughts about the, the voiceover and the monologue. Yes. When the bullet fires, leaves um, Dr. Mrs. Uh, fires the the spec the gun um we get a continuous monologue over that um you hear something narrated from her voice first and from gary and from doc and then from the monarch at the end um and they are all kind of contiguous what they're saying and i think it's significant where just as a as a sign of how all four of them are all in a moment of transition in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the bullet is in the air, it's traveling through space. He is like about to be finishing his like last job, maybe. Dr. Mathieu yeah. is like realizing that she can't let herself be bullied or maybe she's going to take over with a brutal force or something. I don't know. I, I don't really necessarily know what this means for Doc. Doc, it's harder for me to figure out what it symbolizes for him. Well, you know, I wonder if this is going to be like a wake-up moment for him because, you know, he just got shot and no one cared. Well, no one cared because he wasn't really shot. Yeah, but, you know, it's still the case that, like, you know, it was as close to actually being shot as you can get without, you know, I mean, he, he did get shot. He just had a bulletproof vest on. But, it's but like, nobody knew. Like, I mean, the yeah, voiceover you know, that the monarch gives it is like, ha nobody cared. But, like, uh well, of course, you know, Dean didn't know. Dean was in Dean's room. He didn't yeah. know his guy was shot. Nobody, wit- nobody witnessed think, it. I just think it's going to be a big thing because, you know, while while Doc is very blasé about being arched, he hasn't really been, you know, physically harmed by it in a long time. Um, and also just the whole speech to me, like, so I'm just going to read the monologue because it's, it's pretty short. And it says... 
sometimes you do something and you know that second you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And this is Dr. Mrs. Uh, and then uh, Gary says, uh, but you had to make that choice. There was no other way. You're a tiny part of a big machine. And uh, then uh, Doc Venture says, and you feel small like you don't matter, but it's so beautiful that you don't care. And I think this was speaking to a couple things. First, there's a sense that all of these characters are trapped in a larger social structure of super business, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, Dr. Mrs. Dr. Mrs. takes this shot because of social pressure from within the guild. Um, 21 is ordered to kill the wandering spider, doesn't want to do it, but feels that he doesn't have a choice. You know, and he is, like, let's, let's be serious, he is a kidnapped victim who has gone, you know, full-blown Stockholm Syndrome most of his life. And mm-hmm. isn't really capable, uh, or it's not that he's not capable of living in the outside world. It's that um, he's not happy living outside, you know, being a supervillain. Because he did live in much his name's basement with him. Uh, his mom's basement, yeah. Uh, but it just it's more that just he's not happy. And like, the moment that he got an option, he left. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Rusty is trapped by his last name. He's put in danger by his stolen costume. He's being arched, you know. Like, the weird thing about this whole business model, like you said, is that, like, no one would ever voluntarily sign up to be arched. You know, it, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a business model with, with, you know, seemingly no customers or an involuntary product. I don't know, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the monarch feels like he's beaten the system. Like, he's figured out a way to manipulate the guilds, so that he can get what he wants. And, you know, it's like having your cake and eating it too, right? You know, he gets to break all the rules, but he climbs the hierarchy in the meantime. Like, he's he's not suffering any of the disadvantages of being, being the blue morpho, uh, unlike his dad. Um, and mm. the second thing is I thought there was kind of like an existential thing about failure going on, which is that, you know, the moment where Rusty comes out onto the balcony he feels like his lunar eclipse party, which was really about being friends with a celebrity, is a failure. But then he looks up at the moon, and he's like legitimately kind of awed at how it looks. And it's this moment where he sort of realizes, you know, what's kind of really important and what's not. Um, And he's kind of in harmony with nature, as it were. I don't know. What do you think? Am I reading way too much into this? No, I think that sounds perfect. I buy it. Thank you. Yeah. I, I subscribe to this uh, approach because, I, I mean, it, it's such a such a audacious, visually audacious sequence there, and it's so specifically scripted. I, I think that that's a good take on it all. Um, okay, so am, am I make am I am I making sense in my response to you? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. I'm just, uh, I think we've uh, we have hit every last point that we wanted to talk about on this episode. Indeed, indeed. Um, so thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, we'll be back next week with the final episode of the season. And if you have any questions for us that you or anything you want us to cover, if anybody has any outstanding questions about stuff that happened in old episodes that you want us to comment on, let us know. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And Stephen is? Uh, at Stephen Atwell. You have to spell your name because you're not John Smith. Oh, sorry. 
Stephen with a V A T T E W E L L. Yes. So both of us, you can ask us questions on Twitter. Um, graphicpolicy.com uh, is our home space for the podcast. You'll be able to download this podcast on Graphic Policy's iTunes account in the morning. Um, we're also on SoundCloud and Stitcher. We actually have a brand new playlist on SoundCloud that's just the Venture Brothers episodes to make it easy for you to share those and listen to those straight through. Um, and uh, Stephen, where else can people find you online? Uh, you can also find me at racefortheironthrone.wordpress.com uh, or .tumblr.com uh, where I write about uh, Game of Thrones and, and history and politics and pop culture. Great. Um, and yeah, graphicpolicy.com. We're also on Tumblr, Graphic Policy. And Graphic Policy is also on Twitter at Graphic Policy. Um, I'm on Tumblr as well if you want to hear more of stuff along these lines and also ranting about music and comics. Um Ilana, Brooklyn, all one word. So uh, we'll be back with more Venture Brothers on Wednesday. And on Monday, my co-host of the uh, Graphic Policy Comics podcast, he and I, uh, Brett and I will be back to talk about comics, what you should read, what you should ignore, and what we should throw in a fire to burn. No, just kidding. We don't do that kind of thing here. Um, so that's it. Uh, have a great week, guys. Bye. Bye.